Welcome to The Destinationists, the show for the modern travel marketer. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Coming up in this episode... How does an airline break into a market that it's not native to? This is a question on the minds of airlines like Cathay Pacific when they're trying to establish themselves as a dominant player in the US. And with Cathay's mission to become the preferred carrier to Asia, they've successfully deployed a whole range of marketing tactics and techniques in the US to make this goal happen. We're going to talk to them today about how they achieved that. In Trend Monitor, we're going to look at a new report from MasterCard and Crescent Rating about the trends and changes in halal and Muslim travel around the world. Really interesting statistics and an enormous market potential there. And finally, in Campaign News, one of the campaigns that has made us laugh the most recently from Aeromexico, we're going to talk about DNA discounts targeting Americans, maybe a little bit hesitant to go to Mexico and trying to change their minds. All that coming up in this episode of Destinationists, starting now. So the United States, as most listeners would know, is a deeply competitive market for airlines. There are airlines that are regional specialists. There are airlines that are coast-to-coast specialists. There are airlines that specialize in flying out of hubs to international destinations. And the majority of the airlines that do well in the U.S. are U.S. airlines. So how does an airline like Cathay Pacific with a Hong Kong base and an Asian heritage establish itself as a major player in a market that is so saturated. There are a few tactics that they've used, including some interesting content plays, some interesting influencer plays, and much more. And today we talk to Rebecca Ma, the VP of Marketing and Digital Sales for Cathay Pacific in the Americas, to discuss just that. Rebecca, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. So, Rebecca, you were famously employee number 151 at Richard Branson's Virgin America. I mean, that's a very unique position to be in, to be, to be sort of in the in the nascent um, times of, of that business. What's the single biggest thing you would say that you learned from airline about airline marketing from that launch? I have definitely learned a lot. I felt like I was in business school 101 during my time at Virgin America from learning how to how an airline operates to how the airline uh, would launch the brand. I would say one takeaway that I've gotten is really about celebrating your personality and create a reason that people can get behind. With Virgin America, I think we have license to be very risky and bold and daring in a way that we message to our customers. And um, and I think that is really one of the key success behind the Virgin brand and really owning that identity and celebrate it through every single customer touch point. And I think that's really the reason why that people were so excited when the airline launched in the U.S. and people are rallying against it because um, we own that bold voice and daring voice in the airline space, which we never had before. So when it comes to marketing airlines, it's, it's sort of incredibly commoditized. You're all selling a version of the same product, really. I mean, the planes aren't that different. The lounges aren't that different. How do you differentiate um, in that context? In terms of point of differentiation, and it's, it's, very, it's very relevant right now, as you're seeing across on other airline brands, a lot of the product are very similar. I think what sets each of the airlines apart, particularly for Cathay Pacific, I think it really comes down to uh, a unique customer experience, both uh, from the ground and in flight. Um, you know, for example, we have our really reputable lounges in Hong Kong that 
people love um, and we pay attention to every single detail in terms of how a customer, uh, what a customer can do at the lounges to um, our business class product where every single amenity is carefully considered. And I think with that, um, that really is a way to um, differentiate ourselves uh, amongst other competitors. Okay, and just changing tack a bit now, I'm thinking a little bit more about the marketing of, uh, of an airline. How do you um, think that content marketing or a content brand can help to differentiate an airline beyond the product and beyond the actual experience, as you say, in the terminal and in the air? How can a content brand help to really create a distinction for an airline in the cluttered space that, uh, that they operate? Sure. Um, I can speak for, um, for Cathay Pacific. I think for us, it's really about... Um, celebrating our heritage um obviously we're we're a 73 year old airline and we're one of the world's most reputable airline particularly with our network uh and in asia as well i think one thing that we've honed in um for example i think last year we did uh, we did a campaign particularly around owning hong kong because we are an airline born in hong kong and we want to own that identity and uh, utilize that, you know, utilize that identity to uh, provide different types of content that people won't see uh, in other mediums. So, for example, um, two years ago, we actually created an interactive ebook where people can look at sights and sounds of Hong Kong, uh, but also you get a sense of um, what ho- different sightseeing um, spots and activities to do, um, which are tips provided by our employees and also um, also our content creators that you won't typically see in uh, a Lonely Planet or TripAdvisor. So I, I think for us, we, we definitely leverage that opportunity to develop a unique tone of voice and a unique presence so then it would help to set us apart. Uh, and you sort of made the point there that um, you're trying to position yourself as the best airline carrier for you know in asia because of your network in asia and in particular i think in the united states that's a particularly strong uh, differentiator uh, but it seems like in that at least in that market you're not targeting that kind of traditional road warrior traveling on their you know company's dime you're sort of you know expanding out that definition of what your of what your kind of ideal traveler is would you say that's that's accurate and, and like what kind of traveler are you targeting in the u.s and and, and why that one in particular it's interesting because I think for the past few years, we're definitely seeing a shift from promoting against um, the suitcase warriors to those who are really craving life-enhancing travel experiences. Um, millennials have definitely been on our radar for quite a while, but I think even within that segment, um, there are opportunities to look at different dynamic groups, such as you know, family travelers. How do they travel um, together to Asia? Um, a group of friends, what does that look like? Traveling um, for a honeymoon, for, um, for an annual trip, just to explore, you know, wellness travel. I think it's very important to look at um, the different mindsets uh, behind why does um, a specific group or uh, demographic wants to travel. Uh, With that said, though, I think business travelers are still very important uh, for our business. But what what something that we have started to do is um, to also offer some um, content around how does one extend a business trip. So, for example, you have 
five days in Hong Kong, you might have an afternoon free, um, you know, and that's where we, we will serve content like, well, hey, why don't you uh, check out um, the spot for the afternoon or even stop by Disneyland if you're free for a day. So I think uh, for us, we want to make sure that our customers are maximizing their time regardless whether they are leisure or business travelers. And you know, specifically in regards to that, that sort of um, that business, that pleasure trend, as, as you've sort of um, identified there, I think that certainly seems to be growing in importance to uh, airline marketers and also destination marketers. Um, when it comes to pleasure travel in Asia, that additional day or two or half a day even you know, after your business trip or conference or whatever, what do you think are really the key, um, the key role that an airline can play in that particular space? that space, it's important to um, give useful guidance and directions because I think right now you can, there's so many content sources as to how does one tackle uh, a country or destination. Um, most recently, we did a piece uh, on how to tackle a 48-hour layover in Hong Kong. And that, uh, that gives you an itinerary of things to eat, th- uh, places to shop, things to do. So then you're giving you're making it easy for the travelers versus having them trying to navigate different content sources and plan their own itinerary. So I think the opportunity here is to ease the travelers' uh, stress and uh, give them options on how they can navigate a place within a short period of time. And when it comes to those corporate travelers, are are there some other specific things that you might be looking to give them like you know, um, perhaps, you know, best restaurant for business lunch and, you know, they're they're perhaps interested in some other things like gyms, you know, things that some other travellers wouldn't necessarily um, be looking for in a trip. Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, uh, with the ebook that I've just mentioned, um, I think there was two chapters around uh, where are the best places to do uh, business lunches and dinners. So we we definitely tackle that topic, um, and also uh, business etiquette because I think particularly for uh, business travelers that are you know doing business in Asia, it's important for them to understand all the nuances. So um, I think from that aspect, I think it will become you know we hope that those guides were were helpful for uh, for our business travelers. I mean, when we're talking about content marketing and um, you know, using travel content, I mean, influencers naturally comes up. Um, can you tell us about how you've used influencers? I mean, I understand that actually using employees as influencers has been um, one part of your strategy. Yes, definitely. I think um, we want to stay as authentic as possible when it comes to working with influencers um, and also with our employees uh, with pre- some of the content we've produced we really got um, authentic you know real tips from our flight attendants from our employees and have them share those stories with our customers because we want them to get um, the most kind of insider uh, information that we have available as for influencers I definitely think that they're is a space for them and it's been quite an effective tool for us to promote uh, our brand and our stories what we need to focus on is whether the influencers that were selected are uh, are authentic uh, whether their stories are relevant to what we want to, what we want to tell and whether that their identity aligns with our brand so for example um, I'll give you an example we have an influencer called uh, La Jolla Mom She's a mom that's based in San Diego. She used to live in Hong Kong. 
Yes. Uh, but she travels a lot with her daughter all the time uh, between U um, U.S. to Hong Kong and Asia. And uh, we've never given her any kind of directions or, or you know, rules how she should tell Cassie's story really came from her own experience and also through her own narrative it aligns with what we want to say so well from a experiential perspective so i think as bloggers like her or influencers like her that we really enjoy working with because they allow us to tell the brand story through an authentic way and not through a forceful manner one of the last influencers we've worked with was a food blogger in dc we we just launched dc last september and we've also done some uh, activations around that and it's 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 amazing because for him his narrative is around food so all all through the trip it's really about his foodie experience from uh, an in-flight burger he ordered to um, to noodles that he'd had in the streets of Hong Kong. So that presents a very unique and interesting narrative for uh, for the you know for our customers and in a way that we probably won't be able to tell. A lot of airlines have used influencers and they use influencers a lot and sometimes I mean you know the term influencer is <laughs> it covers such a broad manner of sins but uh, you know and some of them are kind of acquired through sponsorships like uh, the, the United sponsorship of the Winter Olympics team last year for example um, and some of them are in your case like you said like the La Jolla Mom and the, and the DC Chef. Do you think there's a, there's a need for large above the line sponsorships with influencers or are those more sort of content driven partnerships you know really what the airline what airline brands need yeah i think it really depends on the objectives uh, of what we're trying to achieve you know for the time being for example as we're launching new markets in the u.s we really want to be very involved with the local community so for example when we launched the dc campaign we wouldn't probably want to use anybody any content creators that doesn't have um an identity in dc because we really want to find that narrative find that voice that the local community can relate to when they travel to hong kong i think there's definitely an opportunity and a room to work with influencers that have um that have a lot of followers that uh, that has an international footprint but i think what i think what we need to focus on is really looking at the micro influencers looking at the communities that you you know the communities that you're focusing on and i think inherently that would yield a much greater result than just working with hmm. someone that has five million followers yeah. but you have no idea whether that would actually touch you know your objectives or reach your target yes, audience yes. or not when it comes to you the way that, that cathay uses content uh, for its existing customers to, to market, like f for loyalty marketing, to, you know, upsell, stimulate repeat bookings. What role does content play in that more sort of performance-driven space for, for you guys in the Americas? I think for us it's really about being, um, being very strategic at promoting the right content at the right time, really showing, you know, this is why it's the right reasons to book, um, whether it's... Um, you know, summer promotions or whether someone has already purchased a ticket, but here's an opportunity to upgrade to premium economy. 
it's really recognizing those trigger points and serve those messaging at the right timing. And um, I think that is definitely something that we are uh, we are working on. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity as you get d deeper into customer data and figuring out what would be the levers to pull in terms of what would entice people to um, to either purchase more tickets or purchase upgrades. I would say not so much about particular routes, but mm -hmm. positioning ourselves as a guide to even pr providing recommendations in Asia. So for example, you know, someone that has traveled to Thailand, maybe there's an opportunity to also promote uh, Bali as another destination that has similar experiences. So I think there's definitely opportunities to do more um, with um, with content marketing. Well, talk, I wanted to talk about um, VR because that's something that a lot of uh, travel marketers are thinking about and, and, and grappling with how to use. And I know that you've recently um, done a VR campaign um, within ad units on a publisher site. I think I believe it was Condé Nast Traveller. Um, you know, what, what do you think um, contributed to the success of that? Because I understand that it was quite successful. It's a significant investment, um, but you did see the results. Can you tell us about that? We did a VR video with the goal of enabling our sales team to share uh, a Kathy, the Kathy experience um, in events and in meetings and in trade shows. What we have discovered that there actually is a way to repurpose um, the long-form video VR content into digestible, bite-sized content that people can immediately consume. So. It's definitely a risky <laughs> initiative. So we worked with a startup that's based here, and uh, they basically sliced and diced um, the VR video into um, different different elements of components. Whether one of one of the ad treatment is um, it's about our lounge, one of the ad treatment is about our business class. So then, when you're in, uh, when you're navigating web pages, you clicked on the ad, it immediately kind of put you into the 360 environment. And I think the success attributed towards the the instantaneous effect of completely immersing yourself in the environment. It almost happened uh, immediately. So mm. you immediately transported to the lounge. You immediately transported to the seat. Mm. So I think that also tackles you know people's attention span yes. <laughs> but also um but also the immediate interest of wow this is what a kathy pacific experience looks like versus looking at brochures or clicking on banners mm, yeah. so i think that really helped in terms of bridging the gap something that we're very happy about very positive i mean well they do say that you're more likely to be uh, struck by lightning than click on a banner ad so that's um certainly um it sounds like a success and and a success when it comes to you know specifically bringing that product to life isn't it when you talk about you know what do the lounges look like what what does the you know kind of what is a cafe experience um that sounds fantastic is it something you're going to repeat are you looking at more vr um i think there's definitely opportunity because um, in terms of content mediums and forums, it changes, uh, it changes and evolves quite often. I think for us as marketers and storytellers, we just want to find interesting ways and innovative ways to tell our story. So, you know, that example, uh, it's, it's a great case study to, to, to share that, you know, it's okay to take risks to do something a little bit different and sometimes it yields greater results than you expected. Mm. So what, I think there's one final question for today really we wanted to talk about. I mean, it's, it's something we're actually um, talking about at, an, at a travel conference 
here in a few weeks at the uh, Mumbrella Travel Marketing Summit is um, over-tourism and, and the role um, that we can all play in reducing over-tourism. I mean, clearly, um, you know, airlines have a role to play here and, uh, and you know, one of the, uh, you know, kind of factors in terms of, you know, that's often sort of signalled in, in terms of their role of over-tourism. You know, how can we kind of work, can airlines work with destination marketing organisations to promote more responsible travel? It's definitely important to take a stand um, on how to influence travelers to become more conscious in terms of the places that they're traveling and what um, what efforts they can contribute. Um, I'll give you an example. A, f- a few years ago, we worked with an organization called Charity Water, and they're focusing on bringing clean water to vulnerable communities, one of which is um, Cambodia. And um, what we did was when, you know, while we're working closely with them um, and providing flights for them to travel, we also share content in terms of their work in Cambodia and sharing that with our travelers and enabling, you know, enabling to give them ways to help uh, nonprofit organizations um, or, um, or travelers as such. So I think it's important for us to tell those stories and to share those information. I think on our end of Cathay, Cathay Pacific as well, we also have a carbon offset program that we promote towards our travelers. So for any flights that they've traveled on, a carbon offset option is always available. And um, you know, from a broader perspective, we're also looking into investing in biofuel in terms of um, improving the environment um, with with air travel. So it sounds like basically what what, you, what you're saying is that airlines uh, should really be sort of offsetting their their impact in some way, whether through partnerships with not for profits, whether through you know uh, carbon offset programs and and other sort of responsible initiatives to to say well we're still going to continue to bring people to these destinations and we're still going to continue to to try and increase um, the, the you know the amount of passengers that we carry, but at the same time then um, making a difference elsewhere to sort of balance that out. I think so. I you know I think it really obviously it it depends on where you know where we're talking you know where we're talking about from from a ge- geography perspective. I think it's important for airlines to um, to to take a to take a stance on the narrative. What does it mean? You know what does it mean to have a meaningful travel experience? Recently, there is definitely more of a curiosity and appetite on how to make a difference. How does an ex- travel experience transform your life? And I think there's an opportunity to really hone in that narrative and and empower our travelers, um, not just to enjoy traveling international, traveling to Asia, but also get you know get in touch with the local communities and see what they can see what they can do well thank you so much for joining us that's been a fantastic chat thank you Rebecca thank you very much thanks for having me enjoy having airline marketers on the show i think they there's a really interesting perspective from that part of the industry to sort of explore and talk about and uh, like in that discussion we had just had with rebecca ma the vp of marketing and digital sales uh, at cafe pacific in the americas had to say um, particularly in regard i thought the interesting parts there uh, of the interview the particularly interesting parts are around 
the kind of influencers that airlines should be using and also that discussion at the end around how to sort of offset over tourism potentially. I think it's some interesting points to sort of um, pick apart there. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I thought it, she was she was interesting. She'd come from what was a, um, I would say, probably the easiest job in airline marketing, which is working for <laughs> Richard Branson at Virgin America, where you do have, I mean, Yes, you don't have a differentiated product, but you had, you know, a brand that was right. very bold and very out there and a very charismatic um, founder. You know, that's... that's all it's, good things. All good things. You know, that's airline marketing gold, isn't it? Um, more difficult. Cathay Pacific, although a great brand, it just... Um, it, it is it is much more in 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 the run of airlines where they are work, have to work harder to differentiate themselves and and to your point I think the, the you know the, the work that, that they've done there um, to position themselves as the kind of the carrier to Asia is a good one and how they've worked with influencers um, to do that was interesting because influencers to me it's always a category where you're like you know how do you see the return mm, on investment agree. how do you prove the value of these influencers I think what's really interesting when it comes to influencers like uh, the La Jolla mom or that chef from Washington DC that she mentioned uh, is is the need to kind of ingrain yourself as a as a you know part of the local kind of culture if you like or, or this kind of sense of, of a particular place I think that's a particularly good way to describe a criteria for influencer activity in my opinion particularly when it comes to uh, an, a product in a sector that is so commoditized because it's the chef can say oh my god the food on this flight was amazing the food in hong kong is amazing but it could be a chef from anywhere if it's a chef from your local area you're like oh maybe i've eaten there maybe i've seen them online maybe i've seen them around the place and so it adds a real sort of um it, it gives that kind of human connection to to what is ostensibly a, 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 a bit part of the overall kind of travel experience, if you like. I think that's right. And I think that's, you know, it's that people like me, you know, part, yeah. which is so important. And I think, you know, let, let's, let's face it, I think when you're, you know, from certain parts of the States and, you know, we, we know they're not as perhaps as well-traveled as some other um, groups, you know, I think that, you know, it is a challenge to think, well, you know, if I go to Hong Kong, what is the food going to be right? I mean, sure, you know, people in Hong Kong love the food there, um, but what am I going to think? Gonna, and, yeah. What am I going to think? And, and what, what a dumpling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think there's, there's an education job yeah. um, and that's you know that she talked about that in another sense around business etiquette and business travelers and the education job they have to do for them about how um, to operate in Asia um, effectively yeah. Uh, yeah. so that that's that sort of inspiration and education the other interesting aspect I thought we covered was around that VR campaign the VR content in ad units I mean the fact that that works so well for me is incredible like I don't even know how that how that happened really well, we finally found um, a role for banner advertising <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, as we know, and as I said in the interview, we, we know that it's, you know, there's the, no one's clicking no. on banner no ads. No one's looking at banner ads. No one's looking at banner ads. But I can see the value here. I can see the immediacy of the experience you're trying to describe, yeah, which is you know, there wasn't that delay. It was, it was a very immediate yes. and visceral sort of experience of, of seeing what the product um, is like. And I guess if you're at a certain point in the decision-making process, um, that is a critical factor, isn't yeah, it? You yeah. know, you're, you're kind of quite far along in terms of your purchase journey. Um, but one of one of the questions is how what is the lounge going to be like? Well, mm, what are the seats mm. like? You know, I want to see that, um, and then you know, and then I can see how that that did actually lead 
to sales. Yeah, you often say actually yourself around that um, the price of admission is just really high quality content because in those banner ads you can do really sort of fun, attractive looking GIF and HTML5 units that move and are sort of animated and catch your eye, but then are you actually going to engage with them? Well, no, this is something that they said, well, if we really want this to work, then we have to um, kind of go over and above and, and be able to not just deliver that VR in the unit, but then make it a very fast um, you know, immersive experience really differentiates them, I think. And finally, her take on over-tourism was interesting, and we're particularly interested in this topic yep. since we are uh, having a live uh, podcast interview um, at the Travel Marketing Summit in Sydney on the 15th of April. Um, and we'll be talking about over-tourism, you know, because it's a subject we've we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I was interested in her take. It was, it was Initially, I was thinking, well, th- th- is that really, you know, how, you know what, how, are we talking about over-tourism here? Yeah. Because you know, normally when we get marketers talk about over-tourism, it's, it's about yield and it's about, you know, focusing on high-value travel, you know, values travellers versus volume of travellers. Mm. I mean, that wasn't her approach. Her approach was very much, you know, we, we, we it's about offsetting. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was that was really interesting. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it from that point of view. I, I think first of all, naturally though, Cathay Pacific travelers in the US are going to be uh, high yielding travelers because they are traveling, particularly if they're traveling to Asia. Obviously, they're going to be traveling long haul and they're going to be traveling generally multi-stop uh, and uh, if they're business travelers they're going to be sort of paying a premium so so I, th- I think it's it's fair to say that there's they're probably targeting a more premium end of the market as they are in most markets around the world they're not budget or even kind of like a mid-market airline um, so I think they are still attracting high yielding passengers but they are taking passengers to places like Bali and Thailand and Japan that are really struggling with these problems and so I, I, I think that, that offsetting that is a really interesting approach I'd have to think about it more like like in my initial reaction is uh, that's an interesting way to sort of you know um, uh, attack the problem but it does feel to me a little bit more like curing the problem rather than preventing it um, but maybe it's up to DMOs to do the prevention honestly maybe also I, I did wonder how that approach um, applies to places that don't don't as, ob- as obvious a social problem as say Cambodia you know if you are talking about Tokyo and you're talking about yeah. Amsterdam and you're talking about Venice um, you know not necessarily the Cathay Pacific is flying to those places but if you think about those sort of headline places for over tourism they don't have a social problem that you no. need to you know sort of tackle downstream mm. it, it is actually just about how locals live their lives in those places yes. you know and, yes. and what the way that that the, the the original experience that people were traveling for has been so fundamentally altered mm. by tourism mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting approach, and it'd be interesting to to speak to our panelists at the Travel Summit uh, about that that idea of offsetting rather than preventing, and see what they have to say. Trend one at a time for this episode, and. We're going to be discussing an interesting report out from MasterCard and Crescent Rating. It's called the Halal Travel Frontier 2019 report. It's basically a collection of 17 trends to watch in 2019 as it relates to Muslim and halal travel globally. Um, they This is the second year they're doing this report, and there were 10 trends there, and now they've sort of like ramped it up. And also um, identifying not just the, the 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 size of the market, but also some of the key changes. So a couple of the key figures here from MasterCard and Crescent Rating are that by 2020, the Muslim travel market is expected to reach 220 billion US dollars 
and it's actually going to increase by 36% to $300 billion over the following six years. So this is uh, obviously a very large um, change in a very short period of time. Uh, and according to this report, there's an untapped market potential here. Uh, and there are a few kind of key trends that they're identifying for um, tour operators, airlines, destination marketers, hoteliers to tap into if they want to hit this market. Uh, Lauren, what are some of the... Um, some of the major kind of highlights that stood out to you from this report? Well, a couple of the trends are certainly, you know, based around um, technology, you know, the, the and, and these um, are trends that are not necessarily in some way specific to halal travellers, but are certainly some of this technology is going to add real utility for them. So yeah. that's things like, um, you know, AI um, and chatbots and the ability mm -hmm. to kind of very quickly um, locate um, halal-friendly restaurants, for example, yes. um, in destination um, as we said, that's something that's going to add a lot of utility for all travellers. But, but you know, if you think about halal travellers, they're in a specific position where they do have really very specific needs yes. when, when they're on um, vacation on yes. holiday. You know, they need to have not only that, you know, halal um, food, but, you know, they need to have access to prayer rooms. Mm. You know, they need to know where Ramadan services are. There are a number of, you know, quite specific um, needs that they have. So that rise of technology and how that's going to assist um, the Muslim traveller um, is, is definitely a strong theme in the report. Um, you know, the other part of that is probably, you know, in destination, you know, more about um, virtual reality and how that can enhance the experience for Muslim travellers, yes. particularly when they're looking to reconnect with their with their roots and understand the, you know, the kind of history, um, you know, specific um, Islamic history around some um, destinations and, um, mm. you know, being able to visualise that. I think what's really interesting in this report um is that connection between the drawing link, obviously saying that there is that existing well-known link between Muslims traveling to Mecca uh, once in their life for the Hajj pilgrimage, but actually uh, it's kind of looking beyond that and saying, you know, Muslims are obviously traveling everywhere, um, particularly now to countries that are, you know, not traditionally or, or predominantly Muslim uh, Islamic countries. And so that, that really has a big implication, particularly in a sense about how, um, as you put it, um, Muslims can reconnect with their identity. Um, there's some great examples in the actual um, report about historic travel sites like in Spain, for example, uh, and, and some interesting ways about how AR and technology can kind of help uh, reconnect those travelers with those places and the importance to their religion, and also um, traveling with other uh, halal travelers to connect, you know, uh, in significant times of the year and also significant places, culturally speaking, as well. So I think that's really interesting and important to highlight the fact that it's not just about um, Muslims traveling to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca, but actually, you know, they want to go away for two weeks to Africa or for a week's holiday in Japan or something, and how these trends kind of begin to um, identify some interesting potential untapped opportunities for destination and travel marketers. That's right. I mean, I think the report, you know, highlights um, South Africa is one of those countries, those sort of non-traditional um, destinations, which are kind of leading the way um, with Muslim-friendly initiatives. It also points to destinations like Japan, Taiwan and Korea that are becoming increasingly mm, yes. um, popular with this group. So it, it, I guess it's making the point that there is going to be increased competition around how Muslim-friendly your destination is. There's also a really interesting point to make, sort of um, leaping off what you're saying there around hotels and, and, and how 
hotels um, in the report, there's, a, there's a, a point about how hotels are really deliberately investing now in more kind of, I guess, um, Muslim and halal friendly infrastructure. But, you know, like previously they sort of didn't really think about it. And I guess it's not it's not a case, what they're saying, it's not a case of turning hotels into sort of Muslim only kind of, you know, uh, travel havens, but really it's to serve guests from many cultures and faiths kind of communicating the advantages of staying at their particular hotel around things like food, around things like, um, you know, prayer spaces and other kind of needs that match their, uh, their, their, their faith requirements, so to speak. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, hotels have lagged behind um, airports in this regard. You know, you've, you've, yeah. had, you've had multi-faith prayer rooms in major airports for some time and yeah. probably more halal-friendly food as well. So I think, you know, hotels are certainly catching up. And it's quite a big shift, especially um, as the report identifies uh, for for um, operators that maybe haven't operated in this space to think about uh, tapping into that market because the growth, the, the kind of 36% growth between 2020 and 2023 is um, is pretty significant. So it's really something that, uh, that can't be ignored and, and you know, provides some interesting insights for travel marketers wherever you are around the world, whether you're in a traditionally Islamic destination or not. That's right. I mean, my, my last point I'd make about that is I, I do question whether this is one sort of amorphous um, group and to what extent you need to understand, you know, the different segments within um, the Muslim um, travel market. You know, there are you know, a number of shared values and, and shared needs, but, you know, really um, you know, a deeper dive into kind of some of the segments there. In campaign news, we want to talk about a new campaign from Aero Mexico, which is the country's national airline, obviously. Um, they've released a new campaign, which they call DNA Discounts. And the idea behind it is that they offer discounts on flights um, to Americans who can show um, in a test that they have Mexican DNA. Um, basically, the amount of the discount depends on the amount of the person's percentage of Mexican ancestry. Um, but it's a very funny spot. I mean, basically, they mainly um, interview the residents of a town called Wharton in Texas about why they won't visit Mexico for a holiday. It's about 300 miles north of the Mexican border. And uh, let's just say that these people are, they hold certain views about Mexico <laughs> that are probably not entirely justified. Um, they don't want to go to Mexico at all. Um, what do you make of the campaign? I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, I, <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. I, I, I really enjoy how people, um, how their kind of preconceptions are challenged in marketing sometimes. Um, and this is a great example of that because it's not too serious. They don't take it too seriously, but it's actually, you know, really kind of riffing off of people's misconceptions, perceptions of Mexico and what Mexicans are, obviously very much set within the political context of the US, uh, the wall, immigration, dreamers. It's just, for me, a great example of intersection between, like, you know, brand truth, audience truth, kind of, you know, cultural opportunity. It really kind of hits all those all those points for me. And it's so funny. It's, it's so just funny. so funny. I watched so it, like, eight times. <laughs> It's so funny, but, but it is essentially taking the mickey out of the people yeah. in Wharton, Texas. So, like, like true blue kind of kind of Americans. They're like, nah, nah, not Mexican. 
don't want to go to Mexico, but you can call them rednecks. I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, you can say that. You can. Yeah. That's fine. I was, I was, yeah. Great. Okay. We can just let loose now then. <laughs> but it's taking it's taking the mickey out of I'm interested in this. Yeah. I'm interested in this in a sort of marketing um, context, which is you know presumably these people aren't actually the target for this campaign. Yeah. The people of Wharton, Texas. And I actually have read that mostly this campaign was targeted at the Western states, which are um, Utah. Um, Arizona, yeah, okay. um, you know, some of which do share a border with Mexico, but yes. probably aren't the, you know, the the really extreme on the, um, you know, kind of in terms of the on the redneck scale. On the redneck yeah, scale, yeah, yeah, yeah. so they they need to be able to let's just learn into that for this ad to work. They need to be able to see the humour in it. Yes. and I'm not convinced that the people who in Texas are seeing the humour. You need no, to be, you know, along that continuum. But you need to be a little bit back from. From your, you know, like, like, you know, violent opposition to Mexicans and Mexico in general. So, um, let's let's um, uh, just kind of peel back a couple of layers here. I think the 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 insight there that you know, uh, sorry, Mexico is not the number one travel destination for Americans, even though America is the number one destination for Mexicans. It's kind of saying we're sort of neighbors. Like this is kind of weird. It's kind of trying to normalize the idea of you know Mexicans and Americans kind of just being effectively the same kind of group of people and and you know some of the results the dna results they use where people are between like three percent and 22 percent mexican um you know really surprises them and uh you know you can see in their faces you know sort of their mind ticking over and going oh hang on i don't like mexicans or mexico but i'm a bit mexican myself like it just begins to chip away at something in their mind and that to me is like I mean, you know, like, you've got the whole Colin Kaepernick for Nike kind of, you know, very worthy. You've got the Momondo DNA journey we talked about, you know, very worthy, as you say, po-faced. This is doing effectively the same thing, but approaching it through humour um, to create greater empathy. And I think that the humour works particularly well in travel because it cuts through all the kind of serious, worthy stuff that we see in this category. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know... Th- this is an airline called Aero Mexico, so you can't get around the fact. No. Um, you know, this is a problem for you. No. You've got Mexico in your name. You need to address this kind of stuff head on. And it's not the first time they've done it. I think at the time that the, um, you know, the wall, um, Trump's wall was first uh, raised. Yeah. They did a, a more serious. Yes, um, they did, didn't they? Yes. Which was sort like of twenty fifteen or something. Yeah, 2016, yeah. where it was um, sort of children up against sort of. Um, you know, fences, fences. and, yeah, and um, you know, sort of black and white, quite quite somber. Um, but they've they've taken these issues head on. They've said we're we're Mexico, you know, which is you know, they've, they've yeah. taken the job of a national carrier to say it's not just about us as a travel destination. It's about us as a nation and, and about our and about our relationship yes. um, with you um, as America and us as Mexico. Yeah, and I think that in many cases, uh, national carriers uh, obviously kind of play on their national identity very strongly. But effectively, what they've said here in this context is, well, you know, let's not be a conflict. Like, our national identity and yours, you know, is very much interwoven. You know, can't we just sort of be friends, really? And I think that the the other thing that I particularly like, that I think works particularly well, is the fact that even though this isn't the target audience, what it says to people is, well, if these people that are on the extreme end of the scale of not liking Mexicans um, have some Mexican ancestry, well, then maybe... Me, as someone in the middle of this kind of continuum of, of American political opinion, you know, m- maybe I can sort of change the way I think about it too. So, I mean, let's not pretend like it's an overly worthy piece of, of, of marketing, you know, worthy of, you know, the, the UN General Assembly, but it does really undercut some of those kind of racist, nationalist undertones in the US. And I think it works particularly well 
for markets outside the US too, who can sort of, you know, look at that and effectively, you know, poke fun at it um, and, and, and kind of, you know, relate to it in that way too. That's right. And I think, you know, for the traditionalists who might say, well, how does this promote the destination? Um, there are a few flashes in the ad um, of, um, you know, scenes yeah. from Mexico, yeah. you know, you know, untouched beaches, you know, kind of um, beautiful Mayan temples. And, yeah. Yes, there's sort of that sort of flashes up sort of briefly yes. um, in the middle. Um, well, clearly, it's not focused on, you know, the attributes of the destination. Um, it, it, is a, it is sort of almost higher funnel than that in the sense of kind yeah. of, you know, kind of breaking through and, and, and sort of getting attention um, through humour and th through addressing this kind of, you know, this niggly issue head on. That's all we've got time for in this episode of The Destinationist. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. If you want to find out more, you can always visit the website at thedestinationists.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn or follow us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Join us next time for more insights from top travel marketers from around the globe. <laughs>